You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Was it an unprovoked slaughter of women and children? Was it the last stand of the natives of the Midwest against encroaching settlers and corrupt government agents? Was it the greatest example of mercy in Abraham Lincoln's notable career? Or was it the largest mass execution in American history? Or was it all of the above? It was the Sioux Uprising of 1862. And our guest today is Hank H. Cox, author of Lincoln and the Sioux Uprising of 1862. We'll talk with him about this controversial event in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programs tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as ever, not speaking on behalf of the university or representing it in any way, in spite of the fact I may be here for a long time to come, uh, rather speaking just for myself, as my guest will do for himself and all the guests do on this show, it's just us talking to you. The university uh, must not be sued for anything that we say. <laughs> uh, well, many things have happened since we last talked here a few weeks ago. Uh, there was graduation on campus, and I had to take a week off and play a rerun show. And today's show is going out to perhaps, I would say, six or seven intrepid listeners around uh, the web, because in the interval since our last show, the, the show webpage and the World Talk Radio webpage and everything else uh, up and disappeared as our corporate overlords at World Talk Radio uh, have been devoured by a larger uh, commercial enterprise, which now owns them. I believe it is called Motivox or something like that. And uh, uh, with no notice to the show hosts like myself or anyone else, suddenly everything was gone. Quite a, a surprise. Through diligent Googling, I was able to track down World Talk Radio and discover that I'm still here, uh, that we're still uh, on the web and 
webcasting to you, and uh, and our show will go ahead uh, in the weeks to come. But if it took me a while and I run the darn thing, I imagine uh, listeners with perhaps less invested in it were maybe not so successful in finding it. I'm confident over the weeks ahead uh, we'll resurrect some way to contact the show uh, directly, some kind of web address, some perhaps a way to point people from the old address to the new one. Something will be done so that we won't lose the thousands of listeners we've had over the last few years. But as of today, uh, if you're listening live, I congratulate you. You have truly mastered the web and found out uh, how to get from one place to another. If you're listening to the archives uh, in the weeks after this has been recorded, uh, hopefully we're back on an even keel and everybody can find uh, Civil War Talk Radio and and the other shows on World Talk Radio, uh, the uh, uh, very important shows on on paragliding and... uh, uh, fortune telling and everything else that that makes life worth living. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I mentioned I'd be here for a long time. Uh, I don't want to hold uh, hold you in suspense. Those who've been following the show for some time, as we've gone through the uh, the agonies and ecstasies of the tenure process here at East Carolina University, and since some of you are kind enough to email in with questions, I'm I'm happy to answer. To say that the uh, Board of Trustees of East Carolina University has, in fact, uh, awarded me tenure uh, effective in August, signed the blank check that will allow me at that time to stop my hardworking research agenda, uh, lose my deep interest in the welfare of my students, and just kick back and uh, start drawing on the taxpayers of North Carolina for the next 30 or 40 years, (laughs) as uh, some of my older colleagues um, once did. Uh, Not the ones here now. They're all good guys, but some of the retired guys. They were just sort of hanging out. Well, that's uh, so. That's some personal good news. And and uh, while I'm talking on myself, and I don't like to do this every week, but I'll do a little more. Uh, the book All for the Regiment continues to be available to people who donate fifty dollars to the book fund of the program. Of course, now our page is gone, so the PayPal link is gone. So you must creatively figure out how to get fifty dollars to me here in Greenville to get an autographed first edition copy of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861 to 1862. But hopefully by maybe uh, so maybe February of, of this coming year, of 2008, uh, there will be uh, some, some fancy new web page with lots of links and things on it. And the announcement of uh, my next book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves?, which the publisher has upgraded uh, to a Pantheon Press hardcover uh, book, so it'll be a nice uh, kind of thing you can get for donating instead of a, a cheap paperback as we first envisioned, just a trashy Lincoln uh, uh, piece of, of, of quick work has been turned into a, an outstanding academic book by the addition of, of hard covers. So I'm, I'm very pleased about that as well. And thought I would share it with you. Well, enough uh, enough about me. Let's turn to our subject today. This. Uh, comes from a book which I read uh, while working on the the book, Did Lincoln Own Slaves? I was curious. uh, uh, The book consists of questions and answers about Abraham Lincoln, questions people asked me in my nine years at Fort Wayne, Wayne, Indiana's Lincoln Museum. And occasionally questions came up about Lincoln and Indians. Uh, Did Lincoln know Indians? What did he think of the Indians? Did he have anything to do with them? And... uh, the, the main answer to that uh, concerns, of course, the Sioux Uprising of 1862. And thinking I ought to read something about it 
But uh, for more detail, I came up with a book called Lincoln and the Sioux Uprising of 1862. The author of the book is Hank H. Cox, and uh, I hope he is here with us today. Are you here, Hank? I'm here. I'm here. I'm just uh, thinking about your tenure situation. You may never have to work again. You can just sit down. Well, that's what I've been telling the listeners all along. At this point, well, it doesn't take effect till August, so I'm going to be teaching oh. summer term, and I'm going to do my usual uh, hard-working job and try to present an interesting set of <laughs> courses. But after this, that's all bets are off. I can do what I want. <laughs> But we'll we'll see how that goes. No, it's not going to go like that. You're going to have students, and they're going to run you around in circles, and you're going to love every minute of it. You know it. Well, you you know you're absolutely right about that. Uh, at least that's how I see it happening. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, Hank, if I may may call you by a first name. We have you may indeed, and um, I'm, I'm not a professional historian. I'm just a fellow who loves history. I've been around a while. I, uh, incidentally, I'm a graduate of Marshall University. And oh, the Thundering Herd. The Thundering Herd. And uh, I graduated in 68, and uh, it was two years later that they had the terrible oh, yes. airplane crash in which the football team and many other people were killed. And as I recall, they were on their way flying back from a game at Eastern Carolina. Yes, that, that is true. There was The 50th anniversary of that was... Uh, Remembered this past season, uh-huh. and they uh, uh, no, not fiftieth. What am I saying? Not fiftieth, thirtieth, thirty-fifth. There was an anniversary of it. Okay, uh, because uh, well, a movie was made. The uh, movie, I probably was the re- reason which I I saw the movie and I. What did you? I think? thought it was pretty well done. Uh, I I haven't seen it, so I'll take your opinion as mine from now on. I'll tell people it was well done. Um, but yes, there was quite a bit of remembrance here on, on campus in, in Greenville for the uh, that, that terrible plane crash, and uh, Marshall played a game here in uh, against East Carolina this this fall, as I recall. Yeah, and you just keep beating us, which we we won. We uh, uh, yes, it's embarrassing. It uh, well, we've had some glory days. Uh, we you know when we were in the Mid American Conference, we won that many years and. And you produce some good players over the years. Yeah, yeah, there are several players in the pros who, uh, 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 Chad Pennington, Byron Leftwich, uh, Randy Moss. Randy Moss comes to mind. A bunch of others, but uh, that's not why we're here. We're here to discuss your tenure situation. And well, that's correct. That's a <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, just one last word on, on football. The, uh, the Pirates here at East Carolina hired uh, Skip Holtz, Lou Holtz's son, to coach the team uh, a couple of years back. Uh, the first two years I was on campus here, I don't think the team won one game in two seasons, and, and Skip Holtz has turned it around. Uh, oh, yeah, you've got a good program now, no question. It's developing, and uh, hopefully continue to be fun fun to watch. Um, well, let's, let's talk... Uh, well, you were asking me, and, I, and, I, and the, uh, the quick answer is that I've uh, always uh, had a love affair with history. I read uh, a good bit, and... I had stumbled across the book uh, uh, just a few years ago by by, uh, uh, David Herbert Donald, uh, who's the preeminent Lincoln scholar at Harvard University. He he was my graduate advisor, so I'm I'm very uh, always happy to hear hear David's name. Well, he's a wonderful writer, but in that book, it's a big, big, thick, square book. It's uh, got two or three pages in there about the Sioux Indian uprising and it just kind of stunned me that I had I had been actually taught history at the high school level for a couple of years and all the read tomes of books 
many tomes about the Civil War and Lincoln, and I had never run across this story. And I just thought, now how can that be? And I went back and pulling books down off the shelf, other books about Lincoln, and and it's just almost never mentioned in any of them. And it's um, uh, last year, for example, uh, the wonderful Doris Kearns Goodwin had her, uh, this book published about uh, uh, Lincoln's advisors and how they, how they, uh, how, how he interact, interacted with them during the war. The yeah. people who had been rival, a team of rivals. Team of rivals. Book. That's right. Excellent book. No mention of it in there, and it was a very big deal there for at least four months. At a critical moment during the war, when Lincoln was losing everything, and I remember in 1862 the Civil War had been going on for a little over a year. The South was winning just about every major battle. Lincoln just couldn't seem to get his hands wrapped around the challenge. He was an unknown, a big, gaunt, strange-looking uh, fellow from the frontier uh, with essentially no formal education at all. And there was a growing perception that, oh, my God, the country's in desperate trouble, and we have this fellow in the White House who doesn't have a clue. And the Congress was uh, in an uproar against him. The Republican governors were plotting against him. His own cabinet was plotting against him. And it was uh, it was a terrible time for him. And this was, of course, right at the same time when he was having to make the crucial decision of whether to issue the Emancipation Proclamation and make it a war against slavery, which was uh, something that he had studiously avoided up until then. And then to have this thing dumped in his lap, and when he first started hearing about it, it was uh, it was hard to... They thought it was something that the Confederate government had instigated. Well, what, when did the word first get to Washington that something was going on? Very, very late August. Uh, the outbreak occurred in mid-August of 1862, and word got there just uh, about oh a week, uh, six days or a week later, because it really was what southwestern Minnesota at that time was the frontier. There were no telegraph cables going into it that region at the time, and the first reports that came out were sketchy, and it was not uncommon in those days to get really exaggerated reports of Indian atrocities that would turn out not to be founded. So by the time credible news got there, uh, it was it was a day or two actually, or maybe three days before the uh, Battle of, uh, of Bull Run, the Second Battle of Bull Run, that uh, was another resounding Union defeat. So, so if we set the the stage here, this is August 1862. As you point out, Lincoln has just had an unbroken string of military defeats in the East. In the East, yes. And you've got. Uh, He's read the Emancipation Proclamation to the Cabinet in July, but he can't issue it yet. Right. He's uh, looking. He's been advised by uh, Seward since Stanton to uh, to uh, hold off on it until he had, because it would look like a sign of weakness or desperation to do it when you're just uh, getting equipped. Calling every for time the slaves to rebel and save you, basically. Yeah. So, so we've got defeat on the military fronts, at least in the east. We've got the the proclamation in his back pocket. We've got, as you mentioned, the governors are restive, the, the, some cabinet members are, are not happy. So it's really, it couldn't come at a worse time in a sense. 
At a time, the people who observed him at the time said he seemed to be almost literally bending over from the weight of his burdens. It just there was no good news, and even in his personal life, his wife that he and Mary Todd had lost another son earlier that year, and she had she had never been very stable. And she at this time, this is when she seemed to just go off, and she was trying to commune with uh, the spirits of the dead, and she was a certainly no support to him at all during this critical time and just another burden for him to bear so you know you just think about it all coming in at him and uh, you wonder why he didn't crack under the strain it was uh it had to be uh a re- i mean it, I, and this is a time when you just wonder uh how could anybody you know keep their keep their focus and and, and resolve and uh and in Lincoln's case, not only do that, but continue to manipulate the situation and and influence events, and very definitely not lose his uh, perspective or his character. And that's the part about it that just jumped out at me. And that was that uh, he had figured this thing out well before it was brought to a conclusion. And and it was a pretty sordid business up there in Minnesota. There's another story there, of course, that we well, talk about the Indian uprising and the reason that the Sioux warriors went on the rampage, but they butchered about 800 people. That, uh, that's, well, let, let's hold off on that for a moment. Let, let's stay for a moment here with the focus on Lincoln. All right. Here, here he is, as you say, in this difficult time. One of the real strengths of, of your book, uh, I thought, was, was the way it weaves these stories together that... Uh, the chapters on what's happening on the frontier uh, uh, are, are interspersed with the chapters of what's happening in the east. Yeah. In the east, and you see Lincoln's view. So by late August, uh, McClellan's Peninsula campaign has completely failed, and he's left down there with a corporal's guard, pretty much. And the rest of the army has been pulled up and handed over to John Pope. Right. Um, and, and Pope is a problem for Lincoln too. Pro Pope is just a firebrand. Uh, he had been close to Lincoln. He had, I believe he had been in the party that escorted Lincoln and his family to Washington after he was elected. And everybody seemed to think he had a lot of promise, but he was just a fiery personality who had a way of alienating everyone around him. He was a kind of guy who very readily blamed everybody else for his failures and suspected everybody of plotting against him and. His personality was such that uh, by a certain point, most of them actually were plotting against him. And there was a, you know, a, there was evidence that some of his fellow generals could have come to his aid at Second Bull Run and didn't, just because they resented him. One of them being McClellan, who had was supposed to be moving that way with troops and just never got there. He was McClellan had a way of never getting there. And so uh, after he removed uh, Pope from command. He had him stalking around Washington, uh, causing all kinds of problems. So one of his ways of dealing with that was to send him to Minnesota to take charge of the uh, effort to suppress the, uh, the Sioux uprising. Well, that, that's... Uh, McClellan did, I mean, Pope did not want to go, but uh, in the event, he was uh, Halleck persuaded him to obey the president's orders and go up there and take care of it. When, what we're going to do now is take a short break. We'll come back in a moment, find out what it was Pope had to deal with. We'll talk about the uprising itself All right. uh, in our next segment. So we'll take a short break here on Civil War Talk Radio. We'll be right back 
with Hank H. Cox and myself, Jerry Prokopovich, in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. you might not want to come back for the next section when we talk about what happened on the frontier in the Sioux Uprising of 1862 with Hank H. Cox, author of Lincoln and the Sioux Uprising of 1862 on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Hank H. Cox, author of Lincoln and the Sioux Uprising of 1862. In our first segment, we talked a bit about what was happening in August of 1862. Uh, the situation from as viewed from the White House, the string of uh, military defeats in the East, the political difficulties, the uh, dissatisfaction of different factions with Lincoln's leadership, uh, the governors, the cabinet members, abolitionists on one side, war Democrats on the other, uh, unhappy with what he was doing. And on top of this, uh, the first reports start to filter in in uh, in August 1862, near the end of the month, that something's going on out on the frontier, southwestern Minnesota, far from civilization. Uh, what was going on? That's what we're going to talk about uh, in our next segment here. Hank, uh, you said southwestern Minnesota was the frontier. How how many people? Uh, how many Euro-American people were out there? How many settlers were there in those? Well, they didn't have really good numbers they didn't have a, a population uh index they were, people were kind of coming uh there were various programs to encourage immigration and there was a large influx of people from the germanic states you want to say germany but germany didn't really exist at the time but a lot of people leaving germany and minnesota looked like familiar country to people from uh, northern europe and farmers coming in a lot of them didn't speak English, uh, but land was very cheap, and you could come over here and uh, you might be just basically one's leg above slavery in the old order in the old Europe, but come over to America, and for just a small amount of money, you've got yourself uh, some rich farmland and an opportunity to 
be a full and equal citizen. It was a very attractive offer. Um, Is this Minneapolis and St. Paul were really small towns, and there were no major towns in, in the southwest quadrant of the state. Uh, not being overly familiar with Minnesota geography, is this Garrison Keeler country? Is this the oh yeah, oh yeah, Norwegian <laughs> bachelor farmer land? Oh yes, oh yes. Uh, Fort Fort uh, Snelling, that's mentioned in my book, is uh, right there in St. Paul. They're refurbishing it now, rebuilding it, and restoring it, and uh, making it a major tourist attraction. Right. So yeah, that's uh, Garrison Keeler uh, country. Although I think. It would be fair to say that in the wake of this Indian uprising, it wasn't a kind of a Garrison Keillor attitude that prevailed. There was a hue and cry in Minnesota among the European uh, people, I guess, called the Americans, uh, that all of these Indians should be hanged or driven out of the country. Well, how many Indians were there in Minnesota at this time? Well, there was. Obviously, <laughs> I, I can't a answer that census. question. A few thousand, uh, but uh, probably no more than twenty or twenty-five thousand. And I would, I'm not guessing. I'm guessing that the white population was overall was maybe less than fifty thousand in the state, maybe sixty. I don't know. Not very. I mean, again, it was a sparsely populated frontier, and uh, people were moving in to take advantage of the, you know, wide open spaces, uh, just beautiful, rich farmland with a lot of rainfall, and it's just there for the taking, really. We how, how did the settlers and the Indians get along in general? Before At first, uh, this was actually the first contact. This was the easternmost branch of the Great Sioux Nation that extended westward across the Dakotas. Uh, but, uh, of course, the white people had been moving west uh, for many years, encountering and in conflict with the eastern tribes, but this was the first serious conflict uh, first first uh, encounter with the Sioux, who had their own culture, uh, and and they were a warrior-like people. And this, actually, this uprising of 1862 were the opening shots of the Great Sioux uh, War that lasted up until uh, the Battle of Wounded Knee, I think 1892, whatever, 1890. And... Uh, at first, you know, the the Indians were attracted to the Europeans because they had these wonderful things, you know, cloth and guns and, and, and alcohol, of course, and pots and pans and a lot of, you know, you, you tend to take this stuff for granted, but to the Indians who lived in kind of just a little bit more advanced in, in terms of technology, a little more advanced than the Stone Age, uh, they 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 were just uh, overwhelmed with the white man's technology and soon became addicted to it and dependent upon it. I mean, they they needed to in the early days of to me the early days of our hist our country's history in the in the interrelationship with the Native American peoples is is the really interesting part. We get most of our Indian history from the movies made in California and of course. That was uh, based upon events in the latter part of the, you know, in the 1800s in the West. But the really interesting battles between the white invaders and the Native American peoples, and the intermarriage and the interrelationship, and you know, and the Native American peoples had a great deal of influence on the development of American culture, and they were woven into it. But those first couple of centuries in the Eastern. Eastern states is much more interesting, and this is uh, just the beginning 
of the conflict as it moves further west. Well, you know, the, I, the, uh, the, the uh, settlers, uh, probably most of them regarded the Indians as pests, nuisances. The Indians would come around and ask for food and take things that weren't nailed down and because they simply did not have uh, the, the Europeans' concept of property rights and certainly not physical property to the Indians. Uh, the, the land belonged to everybody. They had no idea that anyone had a notion that a per- particular piece of land could belong to a person. They'd never heard of such a thing, and they had a lot of trouble adapting to it. That, that's, that's, I mean, there are a lot of interesting points there, certainly with, uh, you know, we we grow up in in modern United States uh, w- with a firm concept of property rights, but uh, in the West certainly today there are questions of water rights. Uh, who owns what water flowing yeah, in rivers? Yeah. Uh, in big cities there are questions of uh, sunlight rights. If you build a building that casts a shadow over your neighbor, a skyscraper. Yeah, now on the world stage right now, we, there is a tremendous and raging controversy about the concept of intellectual property rights. Patents, oh, absolutely. The, the uh, I, I have uh, the paragraph or two of, of, of my first book, "All for the Regiment," uh, shows up in a, another book. Uh, uh, it was originally in my dissertation, and another scholar copied it from there uh, inadvertently. He, he he claims, and I'm sure he believes his claim. Uh, but when someone takes your intellectual property, it's quite uh, quite upsetting. I, I can say from experience. And, sure. and and there are all kinds of issues about that now, uh, putting books uh, on, on the web, uh, and so on. So you're absolutely right. There are many forms of property, and it's it's a useful way when to try to put oneself in the the Indian's mindset to to think of these much more ambiguous forms of property we have today. Well, there was a real culture clash. Yeah, on the Europeans had their way of life, their religion, and and the Indians had their way of life, and uh, and the one of the interesting aspects of this story, and if you read the book, well, you read the book, you know, Bishop Whipple is a yeah. really interesting character, and he was an advocate for the Indians, but even Bishop Whipple believed strongly that, uh, you know, they had to convert these heathens from their way of life, and it wasn't just a matter of converting them from their animus traditions to Christianity, but with the Christianity, uh, he and the other missionaries expected them to learn to be farmers, to uh, you know, wear Western property clothes. rights, to adapt the white and wear the clothes and cut their hair and become Europeans. And maybe, and there were great incentives for the Indians to do that. Indian, any uh, Native American who would sign on to this would get be provided with a good piece of land and basic farming implements and uh, subsidies to get to help them get started. There was an earnest and sincere effort by, and I'm not talking now about the corruption of the Indian system, which was appalling, but yeah, we'll get there that. was a good effort by the missionaries and sub- supported with government money to try to get uh, the Native Americans to basically become Europeans. And uh, maybe one in ten of the Indians did. Now, in my book, there are some uh, Sioux men, Native Americans, who are clearly heroes, who risked their lives to save the white people from being massacred and led John Other Day and led them away, uh, you know, through the back roads of the wilderness to safety. They were, but they were resented by the majority of the uh, Sioux, who thought these people were sellouts. And, uh, betrayed their own people and their own culture. 
but they, you know, it's a basic uh, problem to the Sioux. Uh, you know, women and you know had the same status as animals about, and men didn't. Men were warriors and and hunters, but they didn't raise crops. That was women's work, and it was very degrading. And you know, that's it's kind of hard to sustain a regular lifestyle living on hunted game, uh, and so the. To a certain part, the the Indians had always moved about. They lived in a certain area for a while, and you know, deer after a while figure out they're being cut down, and they move on. And so, if you're living on the wild animals, you have to move on with them. But if you're a farmer, then you can just work the same plot of land every year and produce food, and you don't have to. And you, and it produces a much higher uh, standard of living. And then, with farming comes, and you support industry, but. All of this was alien to the to the Native American peoples, and they just saw that their own way of life was being uh, pushed aside, and that the white people just really had nothing but contempt for them. And it was daily life was just a series of insults and uh, and abuse, and and it was just you know it was building up, it was building up. Uh, well, you mentioned resentment and the anger. Which, you know, and you can look at it from a distance and really see both sides of the arg- of the uh, thing, and you could just say that, well, it's almost inevitable that something like this is going to happen because you really have a terrible, expanding clash of ir- irreconcilable cultures. One of the things you, you mentioned a moment ago was the, the corruption of the, the government system that was designed to to care for the Indians or to provide them uh, uh-huh. with a way to survive if they gave up their nomadic ways. Oh, it was it was just appalling. The, the, we would do, our ancestors would negotiate treaties with the Indians as they did in this case, and the Sioux sold most of their land, which was then doled out to immigrants, and the Sioux were supposed to get a certain amount of money. And and when the money was sent, the money was sent to them, but the system just you know where money's lying around. Uh, people will accumulate to siphon it off, and and you had the Indian agents who, is, who, as a rule, were just crooked as could be, and then they dealt with the traders who were usually family relations of the Indian agents, and they just they would charge the Indians any amount of money for for food and grain and pots and pans and guns and whatever they wanted. And the Indians just had no sense, for the most part, of the value of money or the real value of these products. And so they, the, the Sioux were to get their payments annually. Um, the, the lower Sioux got it in, uh, in uh, June and the upper Sioux a month or so later. And it should have been plenty of money, but the Indians, in the meantime, having no money, would go to the traders and they would... Uh, get the stuff they needed to live, and the traders would write down what the Indians owed. And the Indians had no idea what the traders were writing down. And the traders were just writing down whatever they well pleased. And and not surprisingly, they were charging many times the value of the goods that the Indians were receiving. And the effect was that every year when the money came, almost all of it was immediately taken by the traders, and the Indian agents were in league with the traders, and the and the Indians themselves got very little money, uh, and immediately started running up tabs again for the next year. In this particular year, because of the war, the money was slow showing up. Uh, there was a discussion. The money had always been paid in gold, uh, 
and there was a shortage of gold, and the federal government for the first time had started printing paper money, and some people were saying, well, why don't we pay the Indians with the paper money? And uh, eventually others said, well, if we do that, you know, they don't understand that. They'll think they're being cheated. It'll cause all kinds of problems. But at any rate, there was a delay, and the money was finally sent. But by the time the money got there, and almost like within hours, uh, it was too late. The fighting, the eruption had started with an isolated incident of four young Indian braves. Well, I'm, that's a good good question to, to to touch on here. This was not a a, a planned uprising. No, it was spontaneous. How, how, just, tell about that first incident that, that triggered all this. Oh, it was four young braves, and they had been out hunting in the big woods, and they were coming home. They had had no luck. They were hungry. They were tired. And one of them swiped some eggs from a, from a chicken coop near near one of the settlers' houses, and the other taunted him, well, you can't do that, you know, you'll get in trouble stealing the white man's food, and the other, these are young guys in their teens probably, and one of them said, oh, I'm not afraid of them, I'll show you, I'll go up there and shoot them. If you're a man, you'll go with me, and they dared each other, and they went up there and to the farmhouse, and before you know it, they had killed a bunch of people, and then they probably scared themselves doing it, and then they went on to... Uh, to to one of their base camps and told what they had done, and very soon everybody was running around. Yeah, let's go kill them all. And there were some discussions in the in the teepees, and then some of them had regular houses. And uh, some of the older Indian leaders tried to calm them down and dissuade them, but the young bucks wanted their war. And soon the thing, within days, it had just it was just erupting all over the landscape. And of course. You had within the Indian society, as you do in any society, certain people who are just brutes or, you know, capable of anything. In our society, we have large prisons all over the country that house characters who, if they were set free for 20 minutes, would be out committing the most horrendous crimes. That's why they're in there. The Indians didn't have prisons, and some of these guys, all restraints were off, and there were really a fairly small number of them who were like this, but there was no restraint upon them. And before they were, they were just hacking people to death right and left, uh, pillaging uh, the, the first people that they went to kill and, and loot were the traitors, obviously. They, these were the most hated people out there because the Indians knew these traitors were cheating them out of their money. And the traitors had made no effort to conceal their contempt for the Indians. And so they were the first to be killed. But then it was just Katie bar the door. Anybody around there was fair game. And for a period of about a month, it was just absolute uh, anarchy. And terrible crimes were committed. And there were quite a few rapes. Children were hacked to pieces in front of the, uh, several well-documented insta- instances. Children were, you know taken from their mothers and hacked to pieces that their mothers were forced to watch until they were killed in turn. Just some really horrendous crimes. And you're not supposed to talk about that. It's, uh, it's, uh, we're in a period now of, uh, I guess, political correctness is the uh, correct term. And this, it's quite all right to talk about the cruelty and of the white people toward the Native Americans, which was real enough. And Certainly, my part of the book, when I talk about how the the, the 
the traders and agents were cheating the Indians, and there were white men in Minnesota writing letters to President Buchanan and later to Lincoln, warning that this horror, this stuff was going on and that it was going to have a terrible effect. Uh, so, you know, there's no question about that. But it's also true that the Native Americans had their own approach to dealing with this sort of conflict, and it involved... They did. Hank, we're going to take another break here. Okay. We're going to come back in a moment. We'll talk about atrocities on both sides and find out what exactly happened and what brought an end, finally, to the Sioux Rebellion of 1862. Already? We'll return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Abraham Lincoln and John Pope. What about Little Crow? What about Red Middle Voice? What about the other side of the Sioux Rebellion of 1862? We'll talk about that with the author of Lincoln and the Sioux Uprising of 1862, Hank H. Cox, when we return to Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today. Are you with sure it's not Prokopovich? Prokopovich. You're sure. All right. You yes. And just, I guess just because that's what your mother told you, you know, she might well, have been wrong. Well, actually, no. Um, the name, uh, uh, as my mother pronounces it, is Prokopowitz. I I knew a delightful young lady uh, a few years ago here in Washington named Prokopowitz. Uh, just oh, uh, Joanne. Prokopowitz. Yes, you know Joanne. We we corresponded during the election of 2004. I'm not sure how we came across names, maybe through Google. Um, uh, I think the last I heard, she was living in. She had gotten married, and I think she was living in Hawaii. Oh well, good for her. It was. No, it was the election of 2000. Now that I think about it, because we we were on opposite sides of the political fence uh, in that, and uh, when it was over, I wrote what I thought was a, a conciliatory note, and, and got back a response that was somewhat uh, uh, non-conciliatory, oh. and that was the end of our correspondence. Um, but nonetheless, uh, nonetheless. that's modern politics. Um, uh, but yes, uh, there, there are not many Prokopoviches or Prokopowitzes in the country, and indeed, my one of my brothers, uh, both my brothers, pronounce it differently. Uh, I, I returned it to the old country way when I was old enough to learn it from my grandparents. So, uh, so there are multiple pronunciations. Um, All right, we'll but that. we were discussing the uh, the, the uprising, and uh, in our last segment, we we went over uh, with. Uh, the description of how this began, how the, the Sioux uh, 
I think what it was was a powder keg, and it just the spark set it off. Is a fair way to describe it. It's a, and then it just raged for a while. And again, there were uh, there were pitched battles, and the, the more responsible warriors, you know, sought the opportunity to they attacked the local fort, and then they attacked the city of New Ulm. And there was a, the locals organized defense as best they could. There were pitched battles between the warriors and army troops, uh, such army troops as could be found. Most of the young men, it should be noted, were all fighting the Civil War, which is one of the reasons why the settlers were so vulnerable at the time. And uh, but they were always, you know, they they managed to pull together some people uh, to fight the Indians, and there were several pitched battles. Uh, of army troops in the field and uh and sieges of the of the Fort Ridgely and and then uh, the the town of New Ulm. Uh these places of course are still there in Minnesota. Uh so you had a certain number of these thugs who were roaming about the countryside and you had isolated farms here and there where people and no means of communication. So this thing had been going on for several days, and people would not know anything about it, and suddenly a bunch of these screaming warriors would come out of the woods, and before they knew it, you know, it was horrible things that happened. Uh, but the majority of the Sioux warriors were not engaged in that kind of activity. They were fighting enemy soldiers, and they considered themselves honorable soldiers. Uh, when General Pope came out, his... Uh, and, about the time he got there, uh, the, the the locals under the state authority, and Minnesota had only been a state for two years, had uh, pretty much suppressed the uprising and arrested uh, a whole several thousand or maybe a couple of thousand of the Sioux and conducted some hasty trials, and they were getting ready. They had death sentences for 303 of the Sioux warriors who had participated in this action in one way or another. And this is where the story uh, gets really interesting to me. I may be moving ahead of you, but we're running out of time, and I think this is the whole point of my book. And that is, when this word was sent to Lincoln, he just intervened immediately. Stop. Sent the order, don't execute anyone. Send the record of these convictions to Washington. And so... His orders were obeyed, and when the when the records got to Washington, it was pretty obvious to him and a couple of the attorneys and the adjutant general's office looking at them that they had been hasty, you know, star chamber trials. We're talking about five minute trials in which the people who were accused had no defense counsel, no advice at all, and, and surrendered language. I'm sorry? And they didn't speak English. They didn't speak English. You had a couple of guys, a couple of white men there, missionaries uh, who who did speak. Um, speak the uh, Sutung, and they were uh, acting as intermediaries, but they were really agents of the court. And uh, But even at that level, uh, the any acknowledgement of the Indians that they had participated in a fight was deemed justification for a death sentence. Well, the Indians didn't see it that way. They were fighting in a, in a war. They lost, and they surrendered. They didn't. Uh, it was pretty clear to Abraham Lincoln and his people in Washington looking at these records that this was a, a vast miscarriage of justice. And to me, uh, and in the meantime, the, the white people, the Europeans or Americans, I should say, in, in Minnesota, are screaming 
for vengeance, you know, and and with reason. Uh, Eight hundred people or more have been brutally murdered, women and children, and there have been widespread rapes, just horrible crimes. And these savages, these awful savages, you know, from and you could make a reasonable argument, you know, that the Indians well, killed eight hundred people at a time when the Battle of Antietam, which occurred right in the middle of this, we killed twenty three thousand people in one day. Well, twenty three thousand killed and wounded in one day right. made this thing look like a bar fight or something. Uh, but you know, putting putting that issue aside, they were ha- ha- they were screaming for blood. They wanted all of these Indians killed. They had voted for Lincoln. He carried the state, and uh, and Pope was saying, you know, if you don't want to do it, delegate it to me. And the governor of Minnesota said, if you don't want to do it, delegate it to me. Lincoln just stopped it. You're not going to hang any 303 people. And he, after reviewing the cases, he sat down in his own hand uh, and wrote out the names of 39 of the Sioux, who, according to the court records, had actually engaged in some of the atrocities, the, the murders, the rapes. Uh, and he, the others who had just had been convicted because they had participated in battles, you know, he, he commended them, uh, he, he, uh, he overruled the, the death sentences. And he wrote it out in his own hand and struggling to write phonetically the uh, the pronunciation of the Indian names Huatili K A with hyphens in the names. I was in. I had the pleasure of going to uh, Minnesota to the Historical Society there in St. Paul. It's a wonderful building, and they have many wonderful exhibits of uh, Indian culture. But I wanted to see that letter. They have it, and it was. And they brought it out to me. Uh, the, the curator or the fellow historian I was talking to there had been, worked there 25 years. He had never seen it, which is kind of curious to me. Interesting. And they and they just handed it to me. It's in a Manila folder, and there's this wonderful. It's a two pieces of paper, front and back, and then another signed by Abraham Lincoln, in which he wrote out the names. And he later, uh, on the testimony of some. Survivors who said this one Indian had saved them, he struck another name. So, as it turned out, the day after Christmas in 1862, they actually hanged 38 men, and that was the biggest public execution in the history of North America. Now, if you go down to the Indian Museum here in Washington D.C., where I live and work, they have a, uh, this new Indian Museum. There's an exhibit over there, and they've got some one of the. Uh, Activist, Native American activists complaining. Everybody thinks Abraham Lincoln's such a great guy, but he killed 38 Indians. And I guess that's one way of looking at it. But the other, another way of looking at it is that he risked his political future because he could have lost Minnesota in the next election by refusing to hang 303 Indians and, and chopping that list down to 38, which, bad as it is, still. Uh, to me, it was, it was, this is one of those isolated acts of remarkable courage. He could have just passed this whole thing off to somebody else. You know, I've got enough on my plate. Nobody's going to blame me for not dealing with this. But he knew what would happen if he did. And why was he so strongly concerned about uh, being fair with the Indians when absolutely nobody else was carrying a brief for the Native Americans? Not back then. Today, yes, but not in 1862. Uh, they were considered dangerous pests, annoyances, uh, you know, heathens. Any term you want to use, it was it was a ghastly 
racist uh, attitude, but that's what he had to deal with. And there's this wonderful story that, of course, that I, I wrapped my whole book around this was a couple of years later in the next election, uh, Lincoln lost a lot of votes in Minnesota. He still carried it by a narrow margin, and he said something about that to the senator from uh, Minnesota. And the senator said, well, Mr. President, you would have got more votes if you had hanged more Indians. And Lincoln said, I could not hang men for votes. And it's just kind of a dry uh, comment there, but I think it speaks volumes about him that he would uh, stick his neck out and, and take the time to deal with it at such a time in his life for a friendless people who had absolutely nobody carrying a brief for them. I think it just speaks volumes about the character of that man and his uh, and his greatness that he would. Uh, and this is, of course, in his whole career is just a minor detail, and to the point that most historians writing about that period and writing about him don't even mention it. Well, I, I think that's one of the real strong points of your book is is that it. Uh, it, it puts the story in such a context. I, I knew of the story. Uh, I'd say most Lincoln historians are certainly aware of, of the rebellion and of, of Lincoln's role in the pardoning. But there's a tendency, and I've been guilty of this, to look at it and say, well, you know, he did the right thing. He, he realized these frontier people were hysterical, and surely you can't just hang all the prisoners of war you capture, and it might set a bad precedent. The other side will do it to us. And, and it, it seems like a rational and, and logical thing to do. When you finish reading your book, you, I, I at least got a much clearer sense of, first of all, how, how violent and, and abhorrent to our way of thinking many of the Indians' acts were, the, the dismembering of children the, in, in front of their parents, the, the laughter and, and the butchery that, that they committed, which was certainly part of their culture, but did not make it acceptable to, to the, the, uh, the culture of, of the white settlers. When you, when you read of these horrible things, and, and you say the, the repeated assaults, uh, the, the, the sexual assaults, the rapes that accompanied this, uh, the attacks on civilians, then you start to get a clearer sense that the, the people on the frontier were not just hysterical purely out of racism, but they, they really thought that this had to be stopped. Just as uh, Americans today are outraged when we read about atrocities committed by our enemies or by our own people, uh, we no. don't approve of that, and we're not happy about it, and we want to see punishment. So the so Lincoln was not just flying in the face of, of hysterical racism, but but people who were justly outraged, and to narrow the executions down to those who deserve punishment for the outrages, not not all the warriors. Uh, was an extremely brave act. Uh, I think so. I think so. I think it just speaks volumes of, about his character. Uh, it's, uh, and, it's and, and you know, I've, it's funny. I've uh, since I wrote the book, I've given some talks here and there, and I did one on C-SPAN, and I've got a couple of magazines. Uh, one from uh, Time, published uh, about a year and a half ago, and one from U.S. News and Report, World Report, more recently, that have Lincoln's face on the cover, and I pose a question to my audiences. How many 19th century presidents get their faces on the cover of news magazines in the 21st century? <laughs> you don't see Buchanan or McKinley or, or you know, rarely there. Jackson. I mean, because the man has got such, such a resonant depth of character to him and there's so many layers that you just 
are constantly discovering something new about him that just kind of makes you hold your breath and say, you know, how did they come up with such a man at this time? He was really an extraordinary character, and, uh, and you know, to a very, I think it's very fair to say that we, to the extent we kept our country together and we're still here today, we owe a major debt to, to that I think there's lonely a uh, frontier lawyer. That That's absolutely right. I, unfortunately, we are out of time, but listeners, I recommend to you get a copy of Hank H. Cox's book, Lincoln and the Sioux Uprising of 1862, by Cumberland House Publishers, uh, and learn more about this, this fascinating event. Hank, I appreciate so much your being here today. It was a pleasure. And listeners, thank you for finding and listening to Civil War Talk Radio.